0: Do you want to do this another time it doesn't have to be it's, now
1: it's fine she's she's basically falling asleep in joanna's arms as joanna watches vanderpump rules so that uh that perfect. should be fine yeah perfect, uh, perfect, I, don't know if that's, perfect. I don't know if that's also in your in your tv wheelhouse uh, as you
0: i've um, never gotten into that i've got a friend who's trying to get me into um real housewives and i just i watch it and i'm like everyone's so mean to each other why are they all being so nasty? <laughs> yeah. It's like that is the point of the show.
1: Yeah, I wonder if it's an yeah. America, because it is like among among connoisseurs of reality TV, Joanna included, like that is truly the gold standard.
0: Yeah, right? that's what everyone's trying to replicate. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what what the. Uh, it, may, it may help to be American. Maybe there's something as we said before. More, more cruel and careerist at our at our hearts <laughs>
0: uh,
1: than than for y'all. Um, oh, you wanted to talk about Philip Larkin's dick briefly.
0: Definitely not. No, thank you. It's <laughs> okay. Dave on, I really like. As soon as I sent you that, I was like, "Why the fuck did you send that to him? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, oh. I'll just say, uh, strangely affects my reading of his poems. Not at all. Not at all. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening, and thank you especially to those of you who have taken a moment recently to mention the show to a friend, to somebody you think might enjoy it. I appreciate your passing the word along. It makes a big difference. This week, I am speaking with Alice. Uh, She's back to first to school me on some basics of womancraft, of how women... (laughs) Uh, survive in the world uh, using a whole set of uh, sensitivities and uh, unwritten rules uh, to which I was not (laughs) privy. But she does an excellent job explaining. We have a lot of fun talking about that. And then mostly we get into an essay by Angie Malenko that ran in the London Review of Books a little while ago, but it's Got a provocative title. It's called "Waiting for the Poetry," and then it's subtitled. You can't see this on the webpage, but you see it uh, on the on the um, the browser window when you when you click on the 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 article. the The subtitle is so it's called "Waiting for the Poetry." The subtitle is "Was Adrian Rich a Poet?" So we disagreed quite a lot about that essay, but I think we really did we we got we got into it in pretty uh, pretty good detail so uh, i i quite enjoyed that a few other things come up along the way and it was a very fun conversation as usual before we get to that however i, I there's a little bit of breaking poetry news i thought i would mention the poetry foundation has just now announced that adrian mataika is going to be the new editor of Poetry Magazine. I have no idea if that's how his name is pronounced. A-D-R-I-A-N-M-A-T-E-J-K-A. I'm thinking Adrian Matejka is the pronunciation I would go with in any event. Congratulations to Mr. Matejka and to the Poetry Foundation for settling on an editor after, good Lord, how many? I mean, is it a year or more? They, They were without an editor, they had a a whole rotating stable, which just seems like a terrible policy for everybody involved, magazine editors and uh, support staff alike. So I'm glad they finally settled on somebody. And uh, they have a very bland announcement uh, piece about this. The Poetry Foundation is pleased to announce, blah, 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 blah. Mataika is the first black editor to ever lead poetry. He was selected through national, national Search. We're thrilled to blah, 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 blah. As an accomplished poet, blah, 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 blah. It feels fitting that blah, 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 blah. Uh, Mataika himself has also some pretty boilerplate uh, uh, expressions of gratitude. He, he says, it will be my duty to work with the brilliant staff at the magazine and the Poetry Foundation to continue transforming the magazine into an engine for 21st century poetry. What could that possibly mean? Other than we plan to continue to publish poems submitted by people or solicited from people currently alive. Other than that, is there anything that could possibly mean? I'm committed to reimagining poetry, reimagining it, not only as a venue for poetics, not poetry, for poetics, but more importantly, as one that is in service of poets and treats writers as the gifts they are. I'm assuming this is just yeah, I go, either ghost written by the staff of poetry or uh, just the most inoffensive jumble of you know not overtly incorrect poetry-related statements he could put together. It doesn't amount to anything, or at least I hope it doesn't amount to anything, I mean, because of really all I hope he does is continue to publish a magazine that uh, that includes some new poetry and maybe some new criticism. Here's my big wish for Mataika, though. My, my totally 100% genuine wish, because I don't know his work very much. I, I looked him up a little bit. I've read maybe a dozen poems. All pretty bland, all pretty um, competent if uninspired, nothing remarkable one way or another, Uh, very much of today, it seemed, his his poems. But uh, but I actually think that's okay, right? Because the worst thing we could do, like imagine if our best living poet were named editor of poetry magazine. What a terrible loss, right? I mean, I, I'm actually not being facetious. Like, that would be terrible. The last thing you want is for your best poet to be stuck editing poetry magazine. What you really want is a competent but uninspired poet to, to helm the thing. So I actually think on that front, he's a great choice, knowing you know very little else about him. Maybe he's a brilliant poet. If you are listening and you genuinely believe Adrian Matyka is a brilliant poet and you can point to a handful of specific poems, I please do send them to me. I'd love to read them. I'm always interested in reading good new poems. My suspicion, though, is he is probably very decorated and kind of uh, mediocre. And that is actually, I think, fine. That, that's actually a, makes it, that, if nothing else, makes him a good choice as editor. Here's my big hope, though. My big hope, my 100% sincere hope for Adrian Matejka as editor of Poetry Magazine is simply this, that he published things he likes. I want him to publish poems and maybe sometimes essays and reviews that he thinks are good and most more more to the point that he likes that he enjoys. Now I I I'll contrast. I know that there are people listening who have different feelings about uh Christian Wyman and Don Share. I uh don't know either of them personally I don't have any feelings toward them personally my impression of them as editors of poetry magazine is that they they present you know I know they work together for a good while but I think they present actually a pretty good contrast a good pretty good study in contrast so Christian Wyman uh, got a lot of grief for uh, publishing a particular style of poem I think it, you know it, it's not totally fair I think he, he was not nearly as narrow an editor as he is given grief for being, but to the extent to which he was, you know, I think I think Poetry Magazine had a particular flavor under his editorship. It had a flavor both as a publisher of poetry and as a publisher of essays, of reviews, of criticism, and uh, I think that's a good thing. You know, like it or not, I think having the editor actually like what he's publishing and, and, you know, take up a style, take up a, 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 have a, you know, present a flavor, you know, poetry magazine in the days of Christian Wyman was a thing. You sort of knew what it was. You knew what you were getting. Maybe you didn't like it, but you knew what it was under Don Cher. I think Don Cher did his damnedest and with totally good faith, with a totally honest and open heart. I think he tried to make poetry magazine represent all contemporary poetry. I think he tried to, you know, he had endless theme issues, uh, endless projects and sub-projects to make sure we were incorporating this and that theory of poetry, this and that group, this and that approach, this and that style. And the result was that Poetry Magazine was sort of nothing under Don Cher. Um, least of all. Uh, a place to find excellent poetry because it wasn't as if he genuinely loved all of these various poems and groups and schools that he was publishing. He was just publishing them for the sake of representing uh, their different sources. And I think that's an honest and noble and and good-hearted goal. I just think it makes for a shitty poetry magazine. So here's my hope. I hope Adrian Matejka and I'm assuming based on the little bit of poetry I've read of his and the fact that poetry hired him, I'm assuming that his taste is very different from mine. I'm assuming that if he had his druthers, he would publish very little poetry that I would probably like and certainly would never publish me. But I, I what I'm saying to Adrian Motyka is have your druthers. They are so... Glad to have you. They're so they so desperate to get this shit settled. They're not gonna fire you. Just publish what you like. Fuck it all. Fuck everybody else. I don't care if everybody you publish uh, is uh, somebody from Indiana. Right? He's an Indiana poet. I, I don't. I don't care if as long as you like it. As long as it is actually a magazine of stuff that you like, because then it will be stuff that somebody likes. And more likely than not, it will be an interesting magazine. We will at least have something to talk about when we talk about it. You will know what you're getting when you pick it up. And you know, he'll be there for a few years and then it'll be somebody else's. But I would love it. I would love it if it were his magazine, if it felt like his magazine, if it had his style, his taste. So please, Adrian, go ahead, make it yours, have your druthers. Fuck me, fuck my taste, fuck everybody I like. Publish what you like. Don't make it an engine for 20th century poetics or whatever the fuck your bland statement said. Just publish what you like. Godspeed and good luck, Mr. Mataika, if that's how you pronounce your fucking name. Anyway, uh, let's get to my conversation with Alice right now. I did. I had a, uh, I didn't want to get you because I I suspected this one would get you in trouble. So I didn't want to do that, but I ended up having a long, long conversation with Brian about uh, your last interview or not. I don't know if it was your Can't remember if it was your last interview, your interview with the Cordite editor.
0: Yeah. um, Yes.
1: Which you don't need to talk about because I, yeah, um, no, heaps
0: (laughs) to say about it. Definitely can't say it while you're recording.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, but we, we, it was, it was good. We ended up talking about kind of how, how people should pay for poetry, which we did not, it was a problem we did not solve, but. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's um, a tough one.
1: Yeah. Before I forget, I should ask you this question, uh, which has been eating at me. So it, it came up in conversation with Joanna and I'm going to try to present it to you as neutrally as possible, Okay. just to get your take. Womancraft, by the way, uh, is the name of a real store in Carborough? Um, uh, which, which the wares of which I probably needn't describe, but I, uh, I don't think I've not yet gone in, and I don't think my presence has been missed. Um, <laughs> but so the uh, I, I texted you saying I had a woman craft question to ask you, and, and here's the let me try to put it in the simplest, most neutral terms. So you go to a party, and you see somebody at that party. I think it's someone you know, but I'm not sure if it matters if it's someone you know. And that person try not to read, I'm trying to again I'm trying to try to do this neutrally, so try not to read into whatever tone I use, but this person says to you when you arrive, you got all dressed up. What is your response internally and or externally to that?
0: Externally, I probably reply with a cascade of kind of apologetic, oh thanks yeah, no, this is nothing, this is just um. oh this is you know, the, the, just and the then put, and... start to point out like the flaws with what I've put ah, on <laughs> I see, okay, alright yeah. but internally I'm, I'm probably thinking what do you think I look like usually? <laughs> do I usually <laughs> look like a trash heap? Uh, and, and also probably more than any of that Oh fuck, did I overdress because uh, I love okay. getting dressed up, but I often feel as if I, I go a little too far mm, and um, okay. end up you know a little over the top
1: yeah yeah, okay, so so then to break that down a little further there then there there are then two barbs in that remark, one of which is whatever you look like now, you mu- you usually look much worse. And the other is you put too much effort into this.
0: That's the one that I'm worried about.
1: That's the okay. And the second one is the is the sharper one. Okay. I'm happy to accept
0: that I often don't look. You know, I've been living (laughs) under pandemic conditions for two years. Like I, yeah, you should see us here in Melbourne. We're we're very relaxed and comfortable (laughs) with our
1: yeah. Uh, All right. So and then your your reading of the. Behaviour or intention of the person who said that is what?
0: Well, it depends who it is because... Like if it's a child, (laughs) (laughs) it's (laughs) different. Yeah, Um, I caught up with a, a girlfriend. We were being introduced to her boyfriend for the first time last Wednesday night and the very first thing she said to me before even saying hello was, I thought you would wear lipstick because she was wearing lipstick and uh, wearing lipstick out to dinner is annoying and not something that either of us would usually do. But she had done this mental calculation before showing up. So if it's if it's a woman saying, oh, you got all dressed up, there might be something in there about, I didn't realize we were meant to dress up. Mm, you look okay. better than I do, quote unquote. You know, some kind of right. comparison going on. Okay. I don't, like, to be honest. Well, I do, the, I
1: what, what your friend was saying was like, I got all dressed up.
0: I got all different. dressed up and now I feel like right. I'm standing like, feel like out like one. I I feel foolish. I feel like okay. I made too much of an effort and yeah, I've I've gone to trouble that I didn't need to and I look um, like I'm trying too hard.
1: I see. All right. So then and to cuz I had a, had an extended conversation about this with Joanna and then with Brian and his his contribution was does it change matters if the comment is, "Oh, you got all dressed up?"
0: yeah heaps <laughs> okay right so what does the, the O add <laughs> O is like oh no oh why did you get all dressed up
1: oh so oh oh makes it less ambiguous like it's more pointedly critical i think or, so okay all right because because it joanne and i were watching a a, a television show and a and a, a woman showed up at a party and another woman turned to her and said oh you got all dressed up and my response internally was that that is a compliment, and Joanna's response in inter- you know, vocally was Fuck that bitch, like that's hard, like yeah, what a horrible no, thing thousand to say. Percent
0: okay. With you, Joanna, Fuck that bitch.
1: okay, all right, uh, yeah. yeah. And this is, and to clarify again, this is very different than saying what I read it as equivalent to, which is, uh, you clean up nicely.
0: Yeah. Which I guess people
1: mostly say to men. They probably don't say to women. Right,
0: exactly, exactly. Yes, that is a, oh, yeah. That's definitely a compliment for guys.
1: Okay. Yeah. All right, which Joanna attributes to that's understatement rather than you got all dressed up is overstatement. And so that's, yeah. okay. Yeah, I think
0: that that, um, I am constantly in so many aspects of my life trying to make sure that I'm not too much of anything. I don't want to text people too much, I don't want to say too much, I don't want to be too much, take up too much space in conversation. And so that is just another little area where if somebody said, "Oh, you got all dressed up," I'd be like, "Ah, oh, fuck."
1: Mm, okay. That yeah. would that would be that would tell you that you had miscalculated.
0: I'd miscalculated once again. Okay. Alice Allen has gone overboard.
1: All right. Okay. And and just to uh, so that it, it does um, not to suggest that, that men never think about this. I did. I had a conversation about this with Ryan at the reading I gave recently. Where I, in the in the lobby of the hotel before I, I went up to get my things to read, I, I turned to him and I said tie, and he said no, and and I didn't wear a tie, and that was the right call. Yeah, uh, but it Good does seem Ryan. like there's a little bit more of a burden on <laughs> women to get it because if because if I'm overdressed for the most part, I I think that i feel good about that like i feel like more in control about that but i think for women maybe you have to i guess you don't want to be seen as trying to show other women up or you don't like you don't want to be seen to be trying
0: you have to be like with the lipstick you have to be exactly right the same um if you're too much under or over then it's not just your miscalculation but it's a comment on the other woman all right. and and what the effort she has gone to or not gone to.
1: Okay, wow. The, so there, autism runs in my in my in, among the men in my family it runs in our family uh, to varying degrees. But I did hear once uh, that one hypothesis about autism is that it is a form of extreme cognitive maleness. Hmm. Um, which I don't again. I don't know how much of that is socialized or whatever, but it does seem like in the in the kind of like these conversations between men and women about the sort of things women have to be keyed into, there is often a feeling of like it. It reminds me of the way I have felt when I have felt confused by like facial expressions or both, bo- like tone of voice or that kind of stuff. Like it's it is uh or 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 uh, or totally um, <laughs> left out in the cold by the the now, thankfully, uh, on the wane, um, uh, socio-political slogan, read the room, which I always felt like, hey, come on, what about us? How the fuck are we supposed to read the room? <laughs> We've never been able to read the room. Uh, right, right, right. All right. So uh, Joanna was right. I understand nothing. But um, So speaking of uh, dressing up as a woman in the world, hmm. uh, I sent you this strange article.
0: Yes, um, you yeah. did.
1: Was there? I forget, was there another thing we were, we were supposed to talk about other than this, or this was the main thing, I think?
0: Oh, uh, I did. I just wanted to briefly respond to... Oh, please, yeah, yeah. ...the, the section in your wonderful conversation with Brian about that Atlantic article, hmm. It's Your Friends Who Break Your Heart. I'm so happy to hear you talk about that article because I absolutely loved it. I thought it was so on the money. Um, but there was one bit where you said, you were talking about envy, envy between friends, creative yeah. envy.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And you were saying the envy that you feel about other poets' work, work that you wish you had written, versus, say, um, a grant or a position on a board, is like the difference you feel between seeing a, a beautiful woman with someone else to seeing your ex with someone else. Yeah. And you said, oh, Alice is going to yell at me about that. Yeah, That was the part of the conversation that I agreed with most. Oh, yeah?
1: Good. All right. (laughs)
0: Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. And I didn't, that sort of, I think you talked about it in terms of, it feels as if I've been poisoned. Right. That feeling of encountering work that you, is exactly what you are going for, but they did it and you didn't. Yep. I feel that so much. It's like a bodily response and it does feel akin to what why why the fuck is she with him
1: right yeah 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 yeah
0: Yeah. and, and less less like a possessive like she should be with me more sort right. of i read what you were saying as i wish i could still be with her
1: right yeah it's or that it, it is it is more um it is tied to a like a personal judgment yeah right it's not just a matter of like fate or misfortune or whatever it's it's like this I personally fell short in this particular exactly exactly I
0: think that's the key thing about envy I sort of tried to talk a little bit about this on my podcast as well just Hmm. in terms of like for it to really sting for it to be real envy there has to be the sense that you could have done that you know i could i could have written that if i'd yeah. tried harder if i'd spent more time if i had prioritized it more you can't really envy you know paradise lost
1: yeah yeah i mean right i mean i do envy the work of some dead writers but it is yeah it's the the grander the work the harder it is to envy like I, mm. yeah there's there've been like parts of me that that envy the like certain moments in history where it seems like there was a different opportunity for art. But yeah, I think, no, I think that, that seems right. I did. I actually, um, I'm glad you reminded me because in a recent episode, you talked about poetic significance and insignificance. And uh, I, the only, the only frustration was I wanted, you to figure the shit out. I wanted you to tell me what, would so so then what? So then what do we do? Uh, but there's no solution, unfortunately. But you did, you brought up Weldon Keyes and um, and I just wanted to put in a brief word. I wanted to put in a brief note that I actually love Weldon Keyes poems. Oh, great. Um, that he, I knew he had disappeared in a funny way, but I also knew like a bunch of other people had done that like Ambrose beers disappeared. There actually, there's like a weird, there's a weird tradition of writers disappearing to Mexico because Ambrose Beer supposedly disappeared in Mexico and Hart Crane disappeared, I think, on a way on the way to Mexico. He jumped off the ship. And there was some story about Lovecraft doing that, but I don't think that ended up being true. Um,
0: huh, I didn't but, know that.
1: yeah, Keyes wrote some wonderful, there's also this sort of sub-tradition where Keyes wrote uh, two or three poems about a figure named Robinson. Yeah. And the Robinson poems, to, to my reckoning, seemed to be a very subtle uh, hat tip to E.A. Robinson, um, who uh-huh. also wrote about these sort of quotidian failures and these kind of ordinary men uh, um, alienated from the world. And then, uh, and then Simon Armitage actually has a wonderful poem called Robinson's Resignation that is a it's oh, a cool. letter of resignation it's a great letter of resignation poem and it's um and it seems to be a response to the Robinson poems but um uh if you don't mind i may just quickly read his just the just the simple the first one robinson please um i think i think it's the first one he wrote which is just called robinson uh, cause I think he's a pretty good poet. He has some, he has, I think his best known poem is, the, the, the poem for my daughter sonnet for my daughter. And the, the joke is that he doesn't have a daughter, which is like not that great a joke. I don't love that poem, but I think that's the best known one, but this is called Robinson. It's by Weldon Keyes. The dog stops barking after Robinson has gone. His act is over. The world is a gray world, not without violence. And he kicks under the grand piano, the nightmare chase well underway. The mirror from Mexico stuck to the wall reflects nothing at all. The glass is black. Robinson alone provides the image Robinsonian, which is all of the room. Walls, curtains, shelves, bed, the tinted photograph of Robinson's first wife, rugs, vases, panatellas, and a humidor. They would fill the room if Robinson came in. The pages in the books are blank. The books that Robinson has read. That is his favorite chair, or where the chair would be if Robinson were here. All day the phone rings. It could be Robinson calling. It never rings when he is here. Outside white buildings yellow in the sun. Outside the birds circle continuously where trees are actual and take no holiday. It feels a little bit like, um, I think it's probably also it's nodding to Robinson Crusoe, but I, I read that so I don't know what to say about it. it I mean, I think it, it, it feels a little bit like one of those poems that you sort of start as a joke and you kind of you're doing it in this like smirky way and then it just takes on just a little more aura than you thought it would.
0: Mm. Mm, yeah, I think I'd read that one before. It's it's really beautiful. I love how he's constantly undercutting himself, canceling things out.
1: Um, yeah, well, and even and even like the when he you know the mirror from the from Mexico stuck to the wall reflects nothing at all. The glass is black. Starts to get a little heavy. Starts to get a little existentialist. And then Robinson alone provides the image Robinsonian. We just just to make sure that we know that he's 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 really making fun of himself. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, so he's not my favorite poet, but I think he's got some pretty decent poems. So I was I, I was glad to hear you talk about him, and I wanted to provide a brief defense of the the work as well as the the strange story of the man himself.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm um, I'm glad you did. I I still probably don't know enough about Weldon Keyes to be talking about him, but um, yeah. In terms of the significance question, I think what I was going for there was just relax and stop trying to be significant, enjoy the company of your contemporaries Mm. and their work and enjoy when you nail it and when somebody else nails it. But maybe that's not very satisfying.
1: Totally unsatisfying. Uh, Uh (laughs) (laughs) Totally unsatisfying. Uh, Yeah, I I think probably correct. I think probably correct. Uh, I don't... How do you think about the figure of a poet who and this figure is ubiquitous in history and and in um or in the past, if not in history and and in our lives today uh, uh, perhaps present company included what do you make of the poet who devotes his life to it to poetry and and achieves nothing and in nothing and no record remains how does just i'm curious like how that strikes you
0: i still don't feel as if that's a waste of any kind because to me the important thing is that you can't know that you will be significant or insignificant or that you would remain insignificant forever that poet's poems could be discovered a hundred years later and turn out to be important for some reason. If you were important during your lifetime, I mean, it's kind of what we're dealing with with this rich article. People might spend the next fifty years attacking your legacy and tearing you mm. down and mm. trying to argue that you're irrelevant. Um, I mean, it's not—it's not a happy image, yeah—and obviously we would all love to have some kind of impact for lack of a better word hmm. but if that's the goal i just think you set yourself up for misery and stress and and worry and a constant attempt to control the uncontrollable
1: you know which and that would distract is, that's you from the work right which you know, which is and that's certainly true well, I do think that there's a because it's come up a few times in your solo musings that there is a concern for happiness in your approach to all of this, which strikes me as, uh, totally healthy and reasonable, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but which I think I totally don't, uh, yeah, which I, I resist. I think I just resist that, um, happiness as part of the goal I'll'll uh, so I propose I've said a version of this before, but I I propose for the sake of whatever that though in the past it has been conceivable to to have little impact during your lifetime and yet to be revived or discovered or or valued posthumously, I submit that that is no longer the case. And that, because, that because some kind it of recognition is, is too much. It's too much, right. and it's all ever expanding. That basically, like my thought is that recognition during your lifetime guarantees nothing. But that's the ticket to the lottery. If you are going to be recognized ever in the future, you have to be. You have to at least be recognized during your lifetime. If not, your, your reputation can go up or down or anywhere from there. But from from zero during your lifetime it doesn't it doesn't go up
0: mm. I think. well, that's what it looks like to us now, given our understanding of how digital work exists and yeah. can be sorted through and archived. that might change
1: we should be we should be uh, banking on a civilization ending catastrophe in the next in the next generation that will then let you know so that our our otherwise perishable works will become uh precious manuscripts for for barely literate future generations of hunter gatherer cannibalist or uh, (laughs) cannibals.
0: no i'm just saying don't bank on anything don't bank on anything just write work that makes you happy and makes the people around you happy
1: Again, happiness. Misplaced <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> is... priorities, <laughs> Ms. Allen.
0: <laughs> okay, but so I guess just to maybe contextualize my emphasis on that and sure. and get a little um, introspective for a second, like when I started out trying to write and publish, that question of, significance, being being taken seriously, being important, was really, really the central thing for me. Mm-hmm. And so it meant that every acceptance was um, a moment of, like, ecstatic joy, mm-hmm. very quickly followed by anxiety about the next thing. And every rejection was soul-crushing. Right. And across all that was this blanket of creative envy around everybody else who I felt to be in some way comparable to me you know um, people who are my age who published more who had won prizes who had grants all that kind of stuff and um, it completely divorced me from any kind of enjoyment of poetry and it was only once I got to um, study through Al Phil Reese's, um, Modern and contemporary American poetry course, and had him and and that environment remind me that poetry is there because it's beautiful, because it um, complicates and enriches our understanding of the world. It does all these things that are so much more important than me getting a fucking book in a bookshop, <laughs> and. Um, It just helped me to slow right down and think about why I was actually trying to go for this and to to get the urgency out of it I'd really don't get the sense that you were driven in the same way you've been it seems like you've really taken your time to write and to publish and you've been really comfortable doing that it wasn't like that for me I I felt Mm -hmm. like it was important you know, exactly like what you were describing. I felt like I had to make an impact now, soon, before I was 30, before I was 35. Right. I have to do this because otherwise, you know, time's running out. And um, it, it certainly sounds dramatic to put it this way, but it, it took a mental toll. You know? right, yeah, Brian yeah. talked about this really beautifully in that conversation, just about how he couldn't be happy until yeah. he had published a novel. And I, I completely get that.
1: Yeah. It be, publishing it doesn't make you happy but it relieves a certain venomous like an abscess
0: yeah 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 and you know i'm, I'm speaking as if i've let go of all this stuff entirely i, d- I right. definitely haven't i definitely have not um but it's it's not right here in front of my face anymore this this need to be successful yeah whatever the fuck that means
1: if I have been at all sanguine about taking my time with publishing, and I think by some standards, I, I, I haven't. I published my first book at 29, and I know lots of people would have said that was too soon. And looking back, I, I think it was too soon. I think I probably would have been better off to wait five years. But uh, it's purely a matter of maintaining my illusions until it was too late. Like I- What do you mean by that? Like if I was, if I, I waited 10 years basically before publishing a second book and that, and at least most of that time, during most of that time I had the delusional belief that my second book would matter. (laughs) And so that allowed me the liberty of waiting. Uh, and so, then, by the time I realized it wouldn't, it, the pa- time had already passed. Uh, the, you know, th- there's a moment that I love in um, at the, toward the end of Love and Death, the Woody Allen movie, in which he he's sentenced to die, and then while he's waiting in the dungeon, an angel appears to him and says, "You're uh, the emperor is going to pardon you. You're actually fine. You know, you're, you're a good man. He's a good man. He wouldn't let you die." Uh, you, you're, you're gonna be fine. And he's so happy and he gives the speech about God and, and how faithful he is and how grateful he is. And, and then the, the, the guards come and they march him out to the be shot and he's sort of whistling and he's, he's feeling great the whole time. And he gets out there and he has this brief moment where he sort of says, huh, the emperor is really waiting until the last minute, huh? But he just gets shot as the angel's is just lying and i feel you know i feel a little bit like there's you know it's hard to say whether the angels all bad then like what mate wasn't he better off for having like having an easier night of it than uh but but yeah that's, I, that if if i have any secret that's my secret that <laughs> I, I i was uh totally deluded until very recently um all right so a- angie blanco wrote a uh a pretty um sharp-toothed Review. I guess ostensibly, it's a review of these two books: "The Power of Adrian Rich," a biography by Hillary Holiday that came out uh, a couple years ago, and then um, "Of Woman Born: Motherhood as Experience and, Inst- and Institution" by Adrian Rich, which was reissued uh, recently. So, the her essay was called "Waiting for the Poetry," and it appeared in the London Review of Books a year-ish ago, and I just read it relatively recently, and then sent it to you. I had I wasn't sure what I made of it except that I was interested in it and some of the there were some there were a couple of interesting sort of details and then I was kind of curious about the thesis overall but what was your response or take because I, I don't think I said anything other than just did you do you read Adrian Rich and if so you might be interested in this
0: yeah and I have read Adrian Rich she's not a poet that I will go to regularly I don't get those books down off the shelf often at all But I'm very glad that she is there. I'm very, um, have a lot of respect for her work and for her project. Um, this article, I guess I felt, oh, you must have sent this to me because you thought it would irritate me. (laughs) And, (sighs) and it did. I, I don't just want to sit here though and, um, because here's the thing, right? If somebody's getting published in the London Review of Books to the tune of nearly 5,000 words, and this is a writer who has a number of books out, her her poems have been published in the London Review as well.
1: And by her, you're talking about Milenko.
0: Yes, okay, and yeah, Angie yeah. Um When I read this and I, I feel I have all these problems with it, my assumption that I have to work really hard to get around is, I must be wrong. I must be missing something.
1: This is the mm. London
0: Review of Books. You must be missing something, Alice. But no, you to should my... never think that.
1: You should never think that.
0: Well, that I mean. It should never be your
1: go-to feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would be great I, not yeah. to. But... Don't feel that way, Alice. Yeah.
0: <laughs> my biggest overarching problem with this piece is that it's not a book review.
1: No, it's, it's not a book review. That's certainly true, yeah.
0: And if I were Hillary Holliday, I would be so disappointed to have my book...
1: <laughs> not reviewed not for 5,000 reviewed. words.
0: Yes, I mean, there are a couple of paragraphs here where she talks about... Holiday's biography is pleasingly economical, condensing more than eight decades into 400 pages. It is admiring and sympathetic, but occasionally cocks an eyebrow. That's about as much as we get. We get another mm-hmm. little half sentence a little bit of the way through. There is one paragraph on old woman born... Mm-hmm. But the rest of the article is just Malenko detailing all the ways in which Adrian Rich was a hypocrite, a flawed person, problematic, the ways in which she fucked up in her life. Yeah,
1: yeah. And
0: I don't think that that is, yeah, that that really riles me, you know okay. because because rich was flawed and problematic and her poetry is not um it's definitely not for everybody but you know i've got i got the the collected here out from the mm-hmm. library so i could refer to it this is some pages of poetry by um a woman living in a very particular time she had a very very particular trajectory to her life i'm so fucking glad she exists you know and I mean, yeah. if nothing
1: else like Reading this essay convinced me that she was a fascinating human being, just like a really strange, interesting course of life.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that, though, because she was interesting. She's interesting to us because she had this early success and she published so much. There are over a thousand pages in this book here. She wrote um, for decades and decades... 25-odd collections, but all of us are this complex as people. But Rich, leave it to her complexity publicly. It's all in the public record. Um, the, the transitions that she made from formal metrical poetry to free verse and from living in heterosexual relationships to living as an, as an out lesbian feminist, like, those are, those are big transitions for sure, but, I mean... I'm sure we could both come up with equally um, big changes of life if if we wanted to. But the thing about Rich, and I think this happens with a number of her cont- contemporaries as well, is we get pulled into the tractor beam of the biographical detail. This happens mm-hmm. again and again in this article, mm-hmm. and we neglect to talk about the work. And there's yeah. a lot of fucking work here. And even even Lincoln's um, poems that she pulls out and talks about, I went back and looked at the, the full text of the poems and she's even made some like really interesting and I think a little bit, um, she's elided quite a bit in the choices that she'd made of, of like the lines that she's pulled out. Sure, sure, sure. So she seems to have an agenda, I guess is what, what I'm saying, and I just wonder at that because why why would we want to attack Rich? like? <laughs>
1: Well, what is what it? so, how do you what do you think is Malenko's agenda? Like, like what are her choices overt and 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 you know co- covert or hidden or concealed? Yeah. What do they suggest to you that she's trying to do?
0: i I think she was given this um these books as as an assignment and didn't really want the assignment. there's there's one line here which I think is, um, the article she really wants to write, which is she's talking about these... The, the framing of the article already gets me offside because she starts by saying, Adrian Rich's poems speak so strongly to the current zeitgeist. Why do we keep going there? Why do we keep making this argument around, oh, this poet's relevant? You know, it happened yeah, in that yeah. Ashbury piece that we talked about. But further further down, after she's gone through a number of examples of her poems, She says, it has all come to sound trite and overworked. Yeah. And I think that might be the piece that she really wants to write. And that would be a more interesting piece to read about how the language looks in 2022. I mean, she only died 10 years ago, so it kind of... of, But some of these poems, yeah, they read really, really differently. Um, Yeah. But instead we just get just paragraphs and paragraphs of essentially gossip which I don't know if it's It's not tied back to the biography either. Right. So I didn't even know if it was in the book or if it was just stuff that she knew that she was like, I'm gonna write an article about Rich.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I read the gossip and boy, there's a lot of it. I mean, I, mean, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, I didn't know that she slept with Robert Lowell. Um,
0: I didn't know that either.
1: Yeah, she also said when he died that she felt nothing. <laughs> uh, she was, she was apparently pretty, she was a, a, a pretty shouty uh, person to be in a relationship with. Um, her, her husband, Arnold Rich, Um uh, not Arnold Rich, Arnold, uh, Con, something Conrad, Alfred Conrad. Co- Alfred Conrad, Conrad, yeah. Conrad, Conrad. It was her second husband Yeah. or her, I can't remember. Um, uh, shot himself in a meadow where they'd had a bad picnic. Uh and yeah it seems like she she was in a lot of physical pain because of rheumatoid arthritis and and could take out her anger on her friends and family a lot she was not a good returner of favors she was to, I mean totally in, in uh, self-entitled when it came to like being celebrated and being in the in the in the poetry world elite which she was from an extremely early age uh, I read all of that though as not as a suggestion that like she was particularly bad or or illegitimate. I read it as like uh, in a way like sort of a refreshing uh, um, reminder that she was a brilliant asshole in the model of like Lowell and uh, right. like, Harriman and so many. I mean, and Plath and Hughes. Like so, so many of these writers that we do admire for their work, but were also just, I mean, behaved horribly and in part because they were spoiled by their success.
0: Uh, And and, she was very much
1: in, in that same mode.
0: Yes. And I'm definitely not saying we shouldn't talk about these details, these ways in which she wasn't a perfect person because we need to somehow protect her or that she couldn't stand it. I mean, she could absolutely stand it. All this stuff happened very publicly, but I feel that with Rich and we do this with, do this with Plath and Sext- Sexton as well. Probably do it with Lowell quite a bit. We just get pulled in by these bi- biographical details, and we we don't talk about the work. The thing about Rich's work, though, is that it is a lot of the time it's confusing. It's deliberately unpretty, mm-hmm. and um, it is you know deliberately political. Yeah. And I think that that makes it, uh, you know, and there's just a lot of it. <laughs> so, so yeah, she's she's yeah. a tough one to take on from that angle. It's much easier to go into, oh, her husband shot himself, and she oh, used yeah, to yeah, yeah. get yeah. praise from all these guys, and then she decided she was a lesbian.
1: Yeah. So I I I, I agree with you, and I think that there is a there is a maybe more interesting thesis that remains sort of under the surface throughout this piece. She says uh, Milenko says her essays employ an argot that contemporary opinion pieces might have cribbed from. She gives this list of all of these terms that that uh, Rich popularized or was using early on, and the way she was talking about race and sex and gender roles and all these things was very um, ahead of her time. And I think even in talking about the uh, the motherhood poem, or the, sorry, the motherhood book that's being reissued. Her, her primary observation about that, if I remember, uh, she says its reissue poses something of a challenge. Its core insight that motherhood is a social institution, not entirely natural, has been so thoroughly absorbed by the exp- that the experience of reading it is a bit déjà vu, which I had to look up. It means already read. Meanwhile, yeah. its language, like most sociolo- sociological or political tracks tied to that era, can be awkward, tired, and strewn with jargon. And and the examples she gives seem to bear that out. I mean, I read that as a as a uh, a criticism but also a defense along the lines of those that you'll get sometimes when talking about like classic pieces of cinema that it's it might seem cliched and and uh and tired but in fact that's partly because it was inventing the stuff
0: Exactly and it's it was like introducing, if you try to read yeah if you try to read gender trouble now
1: which is Judith Butler's Judith Butler. Yeah. Have you read it or have you read her? I've much?
0: tried to, I've tried yeah. to, but it's tough going, but yeah, I wish I wish I had read it. I wish yeah. I could read it.
1: But I, I think like the, maybe the more, as you suggest, the more interesting thesis is, is the one that seems to give the piece its title. The title is taken from a review um, of, I think it was Diving Into the Wreck. Rosemary Tonks says, in Miss Rich's work, the moral proportions are valid. The protagonists are sane, responsible persons, and the themes are moving on their courses. Why is it then that we are still waiting for the poetry? So I read that as a suggestion of kind of what Mlinko seemed to think was maybe the big question about Adrian Rich's poetry. I mean, like that to me was more interesting than any of the biographical stuff was this, this sort of bigger question about what, to make of her poetry. And not, and again, I think the thesis was was maybe unstated or was left to other people to say, but I read it as a provocative one, whether or not it's finally fair. How, what did you make of that or what did you think of that?
0: Well, on the, on the Rosemary Tonks review line, why is it then we're still waiting for the poetry? I'm not sure that it follows that if you have sane protagonists and valid moral proportions, that doesn't equal that like you're going to get a good poem. <laughs> like I don't think you can have crazy people and have a great poems. Oh poem sure, as well. sure, yeah. um, So that was I, just sort of weird to me. I, I, yeah,
1: I think that's it's a strange syllogism that she seems to be yeah. building there. Yeah, but no, yeah, I, I think odd. that the I mean the, the the suggestion, which which I do think has to do with her biography, is that this was a a a skilled, gifted, pedigreed, very you know knowledgeable reader and writer who made very deliberate choices about how to live Hmm. in many cases in line with a a kind of a larger political program or a sense of moral. I mean, she seems to be someone who, whether she succeeded or not, tried to change her life in order to make it more consistent with her beliefs. Sometimes in a way that could be maybe hypocritical or uh, seemed a little bit uncharitable she she refused to write letters to people for the guggenheim uh after having received it twice because after receiving it twice she then decided it was immoral which is you know again sucks a little bit uh but i think like you know what is true is that she does seem to be making these choices i mean in some cases i don't want to step even a toe into the whole sexuality question, but like, it's interesting to think about like what, you know, like how deliberately she was making some of these choices versus, versus like what she was discovering about herself and, and whatever else. And, and God only knows. I, I certainly don't, don't know. But the, the Malenko's suggestion to, to my ears seems to be that maybe one of the choices she made was to devote whatever attention, whatever recognition her poetry might have to devote all of that to advancing moral and political causes maybe sometimes at the expense of the poetry that maybe like that was more important and so the the legacy of that might be that if we look at the poems as with this prose book now we might say well this feels a little tired a little cliched a little dated because it was doing this other kind of work. And that other kind of work, while perhaps more important, is less timeless. Uh, well,
0: sadly, yeah, pretty ahead. much every course that she was writing about is, is not, you know, is still is a problem
1: now. I do think though that at least some of her, some of the the means she chose, right? I think like if, you, if poetry is the weapon you choose to advance your political agenda, then the means of that, like the then the details of that those choices are going to be pretty dated like
0: yeah these you're these choosing are to that
1: capitalize are... certain words and not capitalize others you're choosing to be yeah. authentic in a certain way or not to uh, not to appropriate this or that and like those choices are going to get tired pretty quickly right Yeah, like they're, she was they're not really... she was not like reappropriating funds right she was she was changing diction for the sake of uh, uh, an ideal, which again, you know, maybe the right thing to do. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, uh, just to sort of add that she, these poems are really weighed down by their politics, and it it does make them sound like she's hectoring you sometimes. But she's yeah. always in there. She's al- and the argument that Linko seems to want to make in parts is that she's a bystander, but. Rich is always implicating herself in, in what she's writing about. Like, let me see if I can make this point better by talking about one of the examples here. Um, In the article, she quotes this poem. She talks about Rich's fixation on secondhand suffering. And there's a poem that she quotes called Merced, I think that's how you, how you pronounce it. And the bit that Malinko quotes quote says, I find myself in tears. I think of Norman Morrison, the Buddhist of Saigon, the black teacher last week who put himself to death to awaken guilt in hearts too numb to get the message in a world masculinity made. But if you, and, and that does sound like somebody sort of, that sounds like hand-wringing for sure. Yeah. But the full kind of, section. I think if you read a little bit more of the poem, you can hear more of Rich self. For weeks now, a rage has possessed my body. Driving now out upon men and women, now inward upon myself. Walking Amsterdam Avenue, I find myself in tears, without knowing which thought forced water to my eyes. To speak to another human becomes a risk. I think of Norman Morrison, the Buddhist of Saigon, the black teacher last week who put himself to death. To waken guilt in hearts too numb to get the message, in a world masculinity made unfit for women or men, and I think that that last line, unfit for women or men, is that's that's all of Rich right there. She's she is constantly reminding you that this is a world that is is set up and lived on patriarchal terms, but that sucks for fucking everyone. Yeah. That sucks for everybody. <laughs> she is she's not. Um, She's not standing back, sort of trying to get you to agree with her. She's just acknowledging that like this is this is a bad situation.
1: Yeah, no, I mean I, I think that's fair. And I think the the framing it with the 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 lines that precede that little section as you did and as Rich did, makes it much more of a human lyric sort of meditation rather than just a an abstract political statement.
0: Um, yeah. I mean, I guess all I'm trying to say here is like, this is a very complicated person who, who wrote a lot of work. A lot of it's really flawed. Um, let's maybe talk about the work as much as we can and the life, the, the salacious details of the life as little as we need to. Um,
1: I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the work is a thing worth talking about. And, yeah. and is the thing that's maybe most enduringly worth talking about. I, maybe, you know, like reading uh, reading Poets in their Youth or reading like Humboldt's Gift, which is, which is fiction, but which is very closely based on Bellows' relationship with um, uh, Delmore Schwartz, I, I, I find that not just titillating, but sort of comforting. Like I, I take, I find company in the accounts of poets sometimes behaving badly or sometimes sort of, you know, fumbling through their lives. And I don't think that has made me think less of the work of any of those writers. And I don't think it, I mean, if anything, this, like here's, here's the, the the honest truth is that if this had been a nothing but a review of a, an Adrienne Rich book on the importance of motherhood, definitely would not have read it. Like I definitely would not have read it, had any interest in it. If it had been, you know, like maybe slightly more interest if it had just been a review of like her collected poems. But I, you know, I have not read her a great deal. And I've read, I'll say I've read three poems of hers that I thought really touched home as poems. Um, And no, they were not Aunt Jennifer's Tigers. Uh, uh, I think um, uh, an Anniversary, uh, which is a very short poem, Um, uh, Power, which is about Marie Curie, and which is, though it is is, and it sounds sort of political, I think what makes it effective is that it's really very personal. And then uh, I think my favorite of her poems is Living in Sin, which I think is just a wonderful, sad, little weird love poem, like sideways love poem. So I think she was certainly capable of writing poems. I think like this is as a, as a as a piece of writing about poetry and about the lives of poets, this got my attention. It made me think about Rich in a way I haven't, you know, really in, in a long time. She, I've never been a big fan of hers, but this made me think about her. And it made me think again about this question of what like i in a way i felt this as a vindication of the work itself not necessarily in the case of rich partly cuz like i don't care that much about adrian rich but this is like if I'll, if this were a poet i cared more about i might have read this whole essay differently but because she's a poet i already felt sort of distant from i read this more as a almost like a cautionary tale or a hypothetical talking about like, let's talk about poet X and let's just imagine a parable wherein poet X devotes her life to doing the right thing. And at a certain point, what that costs her is her poetry. And I read this yeah. in a way as sort of like Mlinko saying, Hey, whatever else matters and certainly politics matters and certainly social justice matters. Poetry also matters. And sometimes the goodness of the person doesn't the goodness or badness of the person uh, is doesn't help us judge the goodness or badness of the poetry itself. And that That's sort of how, a lot of how, what I read this is, this is saying. But again, it was, you're right, the whole thing was, the whole essay sort of is something other than what it says it is, which makes yeah. it sort of hard to read at times.
0: The other angle on all this that I realized when I watched an interview with Angie Malinko because I really didn't want to sit around here criticizing her work, kind of without having she's, some like it. She's going to come on the show, so, the too, so. Um, Oh, Fuck.
1: Yeah. No, 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 no. Don't worry. Don't worry. don't <laughs> Sorry, worry. Angie. Yeah. Don't
0: worry. Uh, I, I'm just saying, no, she's, nothing. She, from no, she. She, she also doesn't. She's.
1: She's. She plays. She plays hardball. So she's like. She's not. You. I don't think either of us is going to offend her.
0: Oh well. Now I feel really awful. But um. No. Don't. But. But. <laughs> The the thing that really struck me watching this um, interview that Angie did with someone from London and kudos to Angie for getting through what felt to me like a really really tough hour and a half because the interviewee oh was that the guy with was, the,
1: the Buddhist rough? Center guy
0: yeah it was rough
1: oh god I barely started watching that I just had to stop
0: I felt like it was really rough for her but maybe she maybe she was fine but um what she said in that was that she started out writing as a free verse poet. And moved into formal poetry, and Rich did the opposite,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so that would have been an interesting framing, maybe, for oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'd love to know how she sees that move, um, because that is the thing that is constantly brought up about Rich as well. You know, these forms allowed me to handle material that I couldn't otherwise touch, like asbestos gloves or however the quote goes. Um, I'd love to, to hear her thoughts on that. But um Oh, I yeah. I didn't I'm I gonna go that. crawl I'm, into a hole now. <laughs> no,
1: th- no, thank you for listening to that interview. I I started and as I said, it was so, the guy interviewing her was so bad I couldn't I couldn't bear to get but I'm so glad you listened to it because I'm totally gonna ask her about that. I did not know that about her. I mean I knew she wrote formal poetry now. I did not know that she that had been yeah. her, her progression.
0: Can I just finish off this conversation please, with please. Um, a yeah. story? I think this is an this is an instructive story about Rich that is full of biographical detail, but also I think tells us a lot about her work as as a poet. So mm-hmm. if we're going to go gossip, then yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe this is useful. So this is in um, another review of the collected by Dan Jason. One rainy day in the spring of 1960, the San Francisco poet Robert Duncan arrived at my door. Adrian Rich wrote in her essay. Duncan was a demonic bard with a Homeric attitude, who often wore a black cape and a broad-rimmed hat. Rich made him tea while trying to comfort her sick son, who moved between the high chair and her lap. Duncan, whom Rich cautiously admired, began speaking almost as soon as he entered the house and never ceased. Later driving him to Boston in the rain, Rich realised that her car was on empty and pulled into a gas station. Throughout it all, Duncan, the oracle, was still talking about poetry, the role of the poet, myth. Apparently, Rich's role was to make tea for him and to keep things like sick children and empty gas tanks from interrupting the great man's groove. Rich concluded, generously, that Duncan's deep attachment to a mythological feminine made it hard for him to manage so unarchetypical a person as an actual struggling woman caring for a sick child. I love that story, and I so relate to it.
1: Yeah, well, tell me, tell me. Well, tell, tell me how you relate to it, other than I mean, other than just uh, any conversation you have with me. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't told. You, I'm thankful, Thank you for for not telling our listeners about my my hat and black cape.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's really weird how you wear it inside. Yeah, yeah but it fits um, over the headphones
1: really awkwardly. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, how do you relate to that-, that?
1: What's your experience with that?
0: Have you ever read Rebecca Solnit's Men Explain Things to Me? The
1: essay? Because it's a whole yeah. book, too, isn't it? Or, yes, I've, I've read the yeah, essay. I've not read the. You read the essay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've read the yeah, essay.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the way that I position myself in my own, like, poet poetic community is that of a beginner, you know, a non expert, an autodidact. And so when I go to have conversations often with people who, I love the way that Dan puts it here, cautiously admire. I've had those conversations and I've had them for the podcast so they're they're on tape and you can you can hear me being very quiet and letting people just talk, letting men just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and it is, I feel, for me, almost impossible to break in and interrupt sometimes, and I've sat there editing myself and editing these conversations and being like, "Alice, you have to say something." <laughs> He's been going for twenty minutes. You can see it on the on the time. You
1: know? yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. On the you fucking
0: timeline, it. and it's like, you can't just sit there like this. But it, you know, it's it's like in that George Green poem that I I quoted at the end of the last episode, like. Guys, just get on a roll. Mm-hmm. And you feel bad for interrupting, and you feel like you don't have permission to interrupt. And how could anything that you have to say be that important anyway? And that's why a poet like Rich, you know, I, I need a poet like this. I need a poet like Claudia Rankin, who wrote the introduction to this book as well. Like, mm. I need those women to continue to remind me that, like, I can interrupt. Even if I completely doubt what I have to say, I should still say it. Um, and yeah, maybe, maybe I can come up with something worthwhile. Maybe I can't, but I should still, I should still open my mouth.
1: Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. Like that, that makes sense. I just because you've had more experience with this than I have you, 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 you find that men, because you are in a kind of this, this position of interviewing people and and even like your interview style is much more. Uh, hospitable <laughs> or polite <laughs> or you know whatever you want to put it uh, but you you find pretty consistently that just men hold forth a lot more than women do
0: absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah
1: that I, I i definitely believe that uh i also suspect that while everything rich said about robert duncan and i couldn't totally tell in the passage you're reading when rich has quotations. Left yeah, sorry, off and that was a bit messy Jason's with all the quotes, Well no, yeah. which is fine. And, and you know, uh, but uh she says that he couldn't make room for the sort of the messiness of an actual woman having to do actual daily tasks, taking care of children and filling gas tanks and making tea and that sort of thing. That totally rings true. I think that I think she's completely right about that. I suspect, based on my own experience, that it would have been equally true of a young unfamous male poet who was filling up a gas tank or making him coffee or whatever like i think he probably would have held forth for anybody i don't think he would have been stopping to check on the opinion of of a male poet the same age as rich or the same position as rich
0: that's yeah I, i totally agree with that that's that's a really good point um and I can hear, I can hear Brian yelling, being like, "It's not that simple. It's not." And you know, I know I fall into these binaries and be like, you know, women are like this, men are like that. Like, I, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I. I
1: love, but I love binary. It's Brian, Brian who hates binaries. I love these binaries. I love, you know, I, yeah. Uh, he's the one who, he's, he's yeah, enlightened Brooklyn self. He he's the one who opposes all my yeah. uh, easy dichotomies. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. I've had that same non-conversation with Dana Joy, just talking endlessly while picking his teeth at a table about how brilliant he is. He said, by the way, I, it, it, the conversation, the entire conversation was uh, that I had with him was uh, he, I, he had, by the way, paid for my scholarship unwittingly. Um, like he donated the money for my scholarship and I tried to thank him for it, but he just found out that I was merely married to the winner of the Justice Prize that year and then just turned off. It was like, I just stopped being present at the table. Uh, but he he said in the midst of this long monologue about the Romans and how great the Romans were, and that made the Italians great and that made him great, along with Mexicans who were also great, which also made him great. Um, he, uh, he said, you know, when I was a young man, I really thought I would be the greatest you know, poet and critic of my generation. And he paused. And, and it was like a moment that was sort of oddly humbling. It was like, oh, he's sort of admitting to a feeling of, you know, grandeur or like a, a a little bit of disappointment from the idealism of his youth. And then he finished the statement by saying, and I think I have. Wow. Which just, I mean, it's just, you couldn't have asked for a better, a better uh, uh in, encapsulation of Dana Joya's opinion of himself. I mean, he is, he's a, uh very smart guy. He has a marvelous voice. He definitely knows he has a marvelous voice and he loves to hear it. Uh, mm. I will, at some point I actually would love to get him on this show and ask him some questions as well. Cause he's, I mean, he's very smart and he's definitely written some things I really admire. Not the poems I don't, I've not written, read poems of his that I loved. I've read some poems of his that I thought were fine, mm. but uh, he's written some pretty good criticism. Impressive. You, your encounter with him is mostly the the big, um, what, uh, Ken poetry matter? Because I know you've mentioned that before.
0: Yeah, that's the it's the only thing of he's that he's read. Um, cool.
1: Fascinatingly pompous man. <laughs> from one from one pompous man to another, I, I really um, yeah, have to have to give him full credit. Yeah. Um, I I am curious so first I do want to come back to just the fact that when you read this piece in the in the London Review of Books you thought you must be missing something and like if she seemed really wrong that you must be oh my god I, I really want to help you not feel that like I want I want to <laughs> offer whatever I can to like please please be assured that like most people publishing and like especially if it's a if it's a a a, a publication of some rep like renown like Almost certainly there's just tons of bullshit and like those are if it's about literary criticism if it's about poetry especially the more prominent the the periodical the less trustworthy the the argument I think so like please don't feel as if you're out of place for 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 second guessing any of this stuff I mean mm. probably if you smell bullshit you're you're just right. Uh, even yeah, if, I mean, I, I find this piece more valuable than you do, but I want you to feel more confident in, in dismissing it you <laughs> seem to.
0: Well, there were, there were, like, specific reasons for that, and then my general sense of imposter syndrome, which is I've talked about so much I'm boring myself. But, um, uh, you know, I, I guess I wanted to give Angie Malenko as much of the benefit of the doubt as I could because it's kind of like, well, if she's writing this, if she's putting this together... There must be a reason, you know. She's she's highly educated, widely published poet and critic, writing about this um, very, you know, huge figure of American poetry. And 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 I think that's part of it too. Is like it's not it's not my world as much as I I tend to like skew towards reading Americans and and thinking about Americans a lot more than I should. I still don't feel that I I will ever know enough maybe that's part of it too is that I'm kind of split like I don't feel like I read enough Aussies and there's so much that just comes out of the US like every single second I don't feel like I can keep up with that either and I feel a sense that like I I should have a really solid uh, and complete understanding of something before I say that's bullshit
1: but that's I thought you learned five, six years ago when you got into podcasting. The trick is just to speak with confidence and then you don't actually have to look up and you don't have to do any research. You don't have to know anything. If you wanted to know things before you talked about them, then you should never have started a podcast.
0: That's true. That, that was my mistake.
1: So I, I, I'm i also curious because you've talked recently about having this sort of uncertain period in your own work where you, you made it over the hurdle of publishing a first book and then with almost like immediate misgiving about that book, you then published a book, a a chat book that was very different and that you felt much more invested in. And then you have over the course of a few uh, classes taken with Joshua Megan, you've started to think differently about the even the texture of your work, and started writing a little bit in form. You're now how many years into writing poetry in a somewhat consistent grown-up mode?
0: Um, ten.
1: What's the? I can't
0: I remember. ten. Yeah, maybe fifteen.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So, I so I talked uh, for a while with Ryan last night, who's who's he's uh, his second book's going to be coming out in the next year or two his second book of, his second, second poetry collection, I should say, he's had a book of translations and some other stuff come out. Uh, but he's done a lot of work and he's published a lot of work in good places as a as the sort of the poet he's grown into. And he's now feeling the need to not to get stuck, not to fall into a rut. And he's mm-hmm. been reading a lot of Tang poets, which I, I think, I gather that there there's a little more like enduring mainstream Appeal that Tang poets seem to have in Australia than they maybe do in the U.S.
0: Yeah, like I it's a about bigger that. part
1: of your your like diet there than it is here.
0: Could be. Uh, maybe, could it's be. Just, maybe it's
1: maybe yeah. it's just you having mentioned them, and then the your favorite poem mentioning them in an offhand yes. way that assume that seem to like assume a familiarity with the subject in yeah, a way that, 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 I could, that I don't think you yeah. could. I don't think you can quite do that here
0: like Mm, that poem yeah
1: i mean i I felt that's why i felt i had to gloss it here like Mm, it wouldn't have yeah but at any rate he's he's been getting into that and is you know trying out these new things but it's it, it made me wonder about like how do you you talk about yourself always as if you are still brand new to everything which is i think sort of like the honest experience of any poet like if you're really honest with yourself you are sort of always new to it but uh is, have you, like, are you at a place where you think about or worry about something like having developed a style or having developed habits or feeling the need to break them? Because I think uh, in my, when I talk, spoke to Josh from Megan, he said something similar that he's sort of trying some new things and feels some uncertainty about that. Is that, is that even a way that you're thinking or are you, is there too much going on for you to be worrying about that?
0: I, yeah I don't think that I have even come to a point where I am writing like myself consistently, so yeah. um, so I don't have anything solid to break, but yeah what what I keep turning over in my mind is what is what is my own project here? what am I trying to do, and I'm no longer <laughs> <laughs> I'm no longer like I've divested myself of the Dana Joya myth. Like I don't think I'm yeah. going to become any kind of like um, significant or important person in my own lifetime, or you know, if we go by your logic, ever. So, so what's so what's the point then? <laughs> mm-hmm. And and uh, and I want to write things that I enjoy reading. I want to write things, as in reading aloud. I want to enjoy. I want to write things that other people get a kick out of. I really love working in Jennifer Compton's little group that we do each month, mm-hmm. and um, the last couple of times I've been, I've brought them a poem. I've been able to make most of them laugh, and I've been able to make Jen laugh, and that just makes me so fucking happy. <laughs> it's like, yeah. just so, it's such a pleasure, and to be able to do that at a reading, that's that's good too. Not that like humour's the main goal, because God help me if it is, but yeah, I'd like I'd like to be honest, and I'd like to write things that other people like, and that's kind of about as far as I want to take it in terms of goals, because anything beyond that immediately makes me miserable.
1: In the uh, the lecture, Cameron and I talked about Jeffrey Hill rails against what he calls the cult of sincerity, and I I picked up on a similar suspicion. It seemed from you about sort of overly sincere or sentimental poems what do you how do you distinguish that from honesty because you said honesty is something that matters to you a lot you want to be honest in your poems, but what does that mean
0: yeah no i mean honest in terms of i want to show the rough edges of of myself and the things i'm writing about i want to i want to be more photographic than painterly um
1: but is I mean it feels it feels to me like that's a lot of confessionalism, even like neo-confessionalism, as somebody I, t- I talked to recently yeah.
0: said. Yeah, maybe. I mean, like you know, after
1: like, sorry, like, like recount, like detailing your grossness or detailing your flaws or your problematic elements seems like part of the game.
0: Could be easily could be. I after I finished that interview with Kent, in which he had a lot to say about diaristic poems, hmm. I. I wrote something and read it back with that lens and thought, yeah, this is a diaristic poem you've written here, Alice. Like, well done. Um, yeah, when I say honest, I don't mean for the sake of um, showing all, all my flaws and, you know, that sort of race to be, like, the most um, most imperfect person and look how honest I can be. Yeah. I just mean not dodging anything. Hmm.
1: Um, there's a, uh, there's a, a motto that I think Mamet coined that actors will repeat a lot uh, in rehearsal, which is invent nothing, deny nothing.
0: Yeah, that's um, great which that's isn't which of course like great. isn't
1: totally true because you're all like of course you're inventing things of course but but the sentiment behind it feels like it, yeah, it yeah, has yeah. a place.
0: If you can keep that as your goal like the one time I I did a little acting course here that was that was what they tried to teach us to do it was like know the lines so so well that you can you can say them with I want to say like a real emotion that's not what they were trying to teach, teach us to do but this, yeah. is, this is
1: a poetry reading class?
0: No, this is just like an acting class, like a.
1: Oh, 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 acting! Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, I love that. Invent nothing, deny nothing.
1: Right, which is hard to. I mean, which is also just that's a hard to do. Even if you just, just being in a room with a bunch of other people all saying lines that somebody else wrote, it ends up being.
0: Yeah. Fucking hard to do. But yeah, I guess if I'm going to deny nothing, I'm also, um, I'm also going to include the fact that I'm trying. I'm. I'm trying to get you to feel something. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess I haven't really thought about this enough to to have a yeah. fully formed like conclusion on it. But yeah, and I think question. like like Austin said
1: in our first conversation that like it seems like a worthy goal is is if you could put it negatively, you might say uh, no false notes. Yeah. Like people people feel something. They hear what you're saying, and they don't yeah. think like. Eh. I don't know about that. That seems a little phony. They don't. If exactly. they don't think that, if they if they instead feel recognition or they feel the ring of truth, then you've done your job. Whether or not you've told people about your weird birthmark, um.
0: <laughs> that's great. <laughs> oh, it's so late there. I feel like I'm keeping you way too long.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go in a second. I do want to yeah. ask you just because I it was another conversation I had with Ryan walking around our old neighborhood in Baltimore. He we talked about this problem of, like there are certain types of advice that can be really important when you're, when you are older, developed as a poet, but can be kind of deadly when you're, when you're beginning. And, and one of these has to do with writing, like one of the things that happens with very, like beginning poets, with poets early on, is they write poems that feel like they are sort of anybody's poem. Like they're just sort of mm-hmm. like cribbed from the pages of whatever source they're looking at at the moment, and they feel like, yeah, this is this could be like like if all you think you need to do is replicate what you see other people have done, then like, okay, fine, you did that, but who cares? But then later on, there's a sense that you do kind of look for the work that sort of belongs to everybody that could be that like it doesn't it it becomes more. Indelible than your own name, uh, and and this is this problem of. I think the 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 unhappy middle ground we have in the states, at least, is an obsession with one's own voice, finding mm-hmm. one's voice, but then also later on being, being sort of anchored by one's voice. Uh, is that is that something y'all even talk about there?
0: Hmm.
1: Finding your voice. By the way, uh, Kent, what's his name? The editor. Uh, I read some of his poems, fucking garbage, terrible, terrible. So I wouldn't trust anything he says about your poems. I certainly wouldn't trust any statements he makes generally about poetry. But as I said, I hope he continues to publish your work, and uh, I don't want to get you in trouble, so you don't need to come. But <laughs> but do you, how, do you all talk about having a voice over there, or finding your, finding your voice, which is the weirdest way we talk about it?
0: Yeah, we we talk about that for sure. That's definitely something that comes up in um, yeah, writing workshops or sending drafts back and forth. Um, yeah, definitely that's a familiar concept to us. I wonder if there's there's another angle on it that we have. Um, I Maybe wonder
1: about- Sorry, I was going to go, go ahead.
0: I, yeah, I guess I just wonder about the layer of like exploiting your own experience. Mm. They can go on top of that.
1: Yeah, is that is that something you see more in American poems? Like the, the confessionalist impulse?
0: No, I don't think I see it more there or here, I just think it is, um, and Ken actually did talk about this really lucidly, I thought, it's kind of like there's there's a pressure to kind of unbutton yourself and, and show everything, and then that makes it, that's somehow supposed to make it legitimate and good, but mm. half the time it's work that's not ready, and it gets celebrated more for its like total exposure of the self and and the life right. rather than the actual quality of the work. I, I thought that was a great point that you made.
1: Yeah, yeah, kind of like the, <laughs> the equivalent. Well, no, like the equivalent to what Brian mentioned the, the 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 weird fad we had here for a while, which was which was like paying twenty four year old women uh, three hundred dollars to write like an incredibly dire humiliating you know piece about their most weird embarrassing moment in a yeah. like a a prestigious national magazine uh, that everyone would yeah. then read and salivate over
0: i'm glad uh, we're past that yeah yeah but they, what, they, what were you gonna gone. say sorry
1: oh i I, I, was, I was just wondering if it maybe it had something to do with uh our obsession here with um with brand integrity like finding your brand like the promoting yourself and having a brand and sticking to that brand is it ends up being probably pretty hard to separate from the pursuit of one's voice for young poets today Uh, it's it's hard not to have that in mind
0: yeah because you're trying to rise above so many people and so much work whereas here as was kind of outlined in that interview there is a very limited pool of publishers who will publish a full-length collection um, there are quite a few avenues for publishing poetry, but not infinite, you know, maybe right. like 20, 30, um, and you piss off one person, you're kind of fucked. So that, that can be paralyzing, can be really paralyzing, but at the same time, we're not, we're not trying so hard to become ourselves as opposed to everyone else to kind of delineate ourselves. So, uh, yeah, I can definitely think of poets who've been working in a certain mode for quite a while, and then they've shifted and done something totally different. Kent's an example of that. Um, yeah. So there's there's room to move in that way, yeah. but then it's also like you don't want to step on anybody's toes.
1: Which I <laughs> which I've decided I guess to do <laughs> to do plenty. Uh, but yeah. yeah, yeah, and I guess like there's a I think like when I was an undergrad and people were talking about finding your voice it seemed to be more about what was true to you whereas the question does seem to have shifted some to like the 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 like business school question of like finding your corner of the market like what is there still a demand what is there still a need for that hasn't you know like finding your finding what makes you different which is all which is also something academics do it's like find the weird the weird little wrinkle in the field that allows them to be the expert on such and such. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, none of that is probably very good for poetry. And I still don't know what fucking my voice is, but I am getting old enough to start to worry about sounding too much like myself, <laughs> so God <laughs> only knows, uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Any uh, final thoughts on Malenko or... Uh, uh, um... Just
0: um am um, now terrified and feel <laughs> very sheepish uh, and just... No, no, no. Yeah.
1: Don't, don't feel sheepish. Don't feel sheepish. She, I don't think she's... I think she's, she's got pretty thick skin. She's, she's written a lot of uh, essays that have angered a lot. She uh, She once um, famously called Elizabeth Bishop's poetry safer than Ambien. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> that's She's, an amazing call <laughs> yeah she is not wow. uh, she seems pretty fearless I'm not okay that. all
0: right well um, I'll put it I'll just let go let God there um I, I just have one final thing which is like probably not even usable but just yeah. can I please just recommend the, a show to Joanna
1: oh yeah yeah yeah
0: if she hasn't watched it already bad vegan
1: bad vegan is this bad documentary vegan. is this
0: it's a documentary series on Netflix all right it's so good i really wanted to watch it i think All she'll right. like it I she has I
1: want... a she she has she's been flirting with veganism for a few years
0: ah oh, well she might so, be even more interested but it's okay. just i mean because she liked Tinder tinder swindler yeah. um yeah god i'm fucking out my words a lot today man i'm so sorry it's gonna be no. hell to edit um yeah uh but i think she'll like she'll like because it it's one of, it's like a grift it's a grift doco but it's like the purest essence of you know
1: you just get yeah that you that you just you just had a grift daco which you like there is an Australian style of abbreviation that is really it's like it's like it's like two parts prison three parts preschool <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just like I can't quite figure out where where the balance is <laughs> you popped up to perceive the weekend we no, wouldn't even call it the weekend the avo. Um, you know, it's just I don't even I know how to know it. orient. But yeah, Joanna will definitely be saying a grift daco in the future.
0: I, I, I really hope she likes it. It's just fucking oh, transcendent. Anyway, thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, thank I you. You tell you can tell your your
1: man that uh that I got I got smoked by a nine year old girl last night on, oh, on justcom. Yes. Just, okay. Her because it, when when she won her little photo like on the app like got slightly bigger for a second and I saw like I'd seen like a photo of like a man with a with a, a goatee but then it zoomed in and I realized like the t- the name was Claire and there was like, he was his tiny daughter was at his side and it was like oh Aww, she's Claire. the one who just like who just like <laughs> cut me to pieces in twenty three moves <laughs> well well done Claire
0: well done Claire good work.
1: That was my conversation with Alice Allen of Poetry Says. As always, you can find her on Twitter at Poetry underscore says uh, or uh, on her excellent podcast, Poetry Says. If you don't know all that already, you probably haven't been listening to this podcast very long, but in any event, welcome. You can reach me at sleerickets at gmail.com or on Twitter at sleerickets where somebody will be manning (laughs) that particular helm and uh, responding sassily to whatever it is that's on your mind. Because you have bothered to listen all the way to the end of this episode and not uh, gone ahead and said mark as played as soon as you got past the end of the interview, uh, I have a treat for you. Um, Instead of uh, the the usual sign-off, I'm going to end this episode with a brief preview of a thing that I've been fiddling with and working on for a little while. Um, a, a, this is a sample of a secret episode about which more later, but for now, here is something short and stupid. I hope you enjoy. But I did get, I did get an email in response specifically to your question, um, which is not a sandbagging answer.
0: Okay, well, I'm ready but for
1: that. A, a wise and thoughtful uh, answer from a wise and thoughtful, a consistently wise and thoughtful source. So this is Coleman, Pastor Coleman wrote in, to say, fun episode with Brian, a few quick thoughts about your question around people getting old and more solidified in their beliefs. And he he, he had a few theories, and my, my inclination is to say, I think he's just completely right.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna take this guy down. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay.
1: Brian versus Coleman. Pastor Um, Coleman. Pastor Coleman. Uh, Reverend Coleman, sorry. I think Reverend Coleman. You see? Already Uh, we're changing the story. All right. Know who this guy thinks he is. Slippery uh, pastor. All right. Uh, Rabbi Coleman all of a sudden. Okay. Uh, He says, I I, I speculate there are a few things at play. Um, For one thing, in terms of the stage you and I are at, and I think we're we're all three around the same age within a few years. I'm
0: 41. 41.
1: And I'm 39, and I think he's 38 uh he says there's the cultural trope of the midlife crisis which which involves a lot of questioning and reassessment i think the getting older and crankier trope applies to later middle age into old age so maybe give it another 20 30 years and we'll get more self-assured oh that's a good point yeah like we're we are actually middle-aged but when people say middle-aged what they mean is like late 50s which is insane yep um uh, so far the pastor
0: pastor's one for one
1: uh, so then he says, for another thing, I think there are cultural factors at play, where the culture celebrates a kind of question everything attitude and has for a long time, even in the formative years of our of our boomer parents generation. Even a fairly conservative piece of popular culture, like the horrendously racist and imperialist song, a puzzlement from the King and I celebrates later life rethinking of assumptions, albeit in a, hey, maybe Western culture is really the best culture kind of way. Not an ideal example, Coleman, but I think that it's a fair point. Um, Seems rather specific. <laughs> no. I don't know, I, no. No, I'm not, I'm not sure what, what to do with Coleman. that, Coleman, <laughs> yeah. but
0: okay, uh, one, one and a half out of two there. It's, uh... um,
1: I think I might see more of the this is the way things are and have always and always have been attitude in the generation above that, the generation that is now in their eighties and nineties. And I don't think it's just because they're older. Do we um, have to pretend that generations are real? Uh no. Because why would generations be real? No. I mean, generations are not real in the sense that like people have kids in big regular cycles beyond something like the baby boom. Um
0: Right. I mean, um, I get that a lot of people had
1: kids after World War II. Yeah. But, beyond that, like, they're not real in any, in any like, uh, uh, genealogical sense. And they're only, they're only real in the vaguest way when it comes to like a number of people being at a certain age when some historical event or technological development occurs. Right. That and my understanding is they almost never include black people. Usu- yeah. Usually generation right? like, refers to right. like middle-class white people. Right. And, and like, and like media elite white people. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. So we agree. Uh, Carry on. Yep. Um, But maybe the biggest factor, this is Coleman again, is that uh, as people age, they get tired of arguing to the extent that that's true, saying who knows anything about anything and saying, hey, you dumb kids, why don't you just admit the obvious truth are two sides of the same too tired to fight about it coin, Um, which I think probably- That
0: might be a really good point.
1: Pretty right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That might be really smart.
1: I think Coleman, there's a reason Coleman's a pastor and we are- Mere podcasters um because he's sort of wise and thoughtful and measured and he's and he's so like gentle and apologetic in his tone yeah. around this set of comments so yeah yeah he, you he probably, probably think more
0: highly of pastors than i do but that point um, <laughs> that that coleman made um he seemed like a really smart guy <laughs> yeah,
1: i think he is i think he probably gives good sermons or whatever they call them in, in whatever kind of church he, he leads uh yeah so thank you coleman Uh, You were right. Case closed. Nobody else right in. Um, Yeah.
0: I was expecting to have a lot lot more to disagree with (laughs) Coleman
1: about, but it turns out he's a really smart, sensible guy. And that's why the Jews killed our Lord and Savior. Yeah.
0: Oh, wait. He said that? (laughs) He (laughs) said that? Coleman, I take it back.